Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 12th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories. And then we have Eric Jarvis here to talk about a big batch of bird genomes. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's joining us by phone, and he's here to talk about some recent online news stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on an extraterrestrial source of life. One theory of how life on Earth came to be is that it was brought here by an asteroid. Now some scientists are saying close, but not quite right. They say it's possible the impact of an asteroid itself might have created life, and they showed some proof in the lab. So Dave, how did they set up this experiment? Well, Sarah, it all starts with a high-powered laser. (laughs) And the point was to try to reproduce the hellish conditions that happen when an asteroid slams into Earth. You're talking about really intense temperatures, really intense pressures. But that's not all you need. You also need a chemical called formamide, which is this fairly simple compound, but it's thought to have formed the basis of some of the building blocks of life. And it was not uncoincidentally, very prevalent on early Earth. So what the researchers did was they basically took this high-powered laser and they fired this laser into a solution containing formamide. And when you say they came out with life on the other end, what were the actual constituents that appeared after this big impact? Well, they didn't really come out with life, but they came out with some of the building blocks of life. And what they found was when they blasted this formamide, and they looked at the solution afterwards, they started seeing what are called RNA nucleobases. These are things like adenine, guanine, cytosine, and uracil. And if you think about the genetic code, that's A, G, C, and U, which actually makes up RNA. It would be T if we were talking about DNA. But these are really the basic building blocks of this vastly important molecule that we know encodes genetic information. RNA may have actually been one of the first molecules, if not Mm -hmm. the first molecule, on Earth to have done this. What about the asteroid impact? 
we're talking about a very long time ago. Was this a common occurrence when scientists think that life first arose on the planet? Yeah, around four billion years ago, Earth was experiencing something called the late heavy bombardment, which is sort of as dramatic as it sounds. This lasted about 150 million years, and we had a bunch of large objects pummeling our planet and the moon as well, along with some other planets in the solar system. A lot of researchers thought that such impacts were so intense they actually sterilized Earth's surface, but this study suggests that actually they may have helped create life. Now we go from visiting asteroids to visiting comets. I'm sure many of us were paying close attention to the comet landing last month, but what if I told you there are comet samples here on Earth that scientists have been grabbing up for years? What's been the history of comet dust collection so far, Dave? Well, Sarah, comet dust is one of the rarest things we try to get our hands on. And the reason we're so excited about it is because it's really the oldest astronomical particles that we have available for study when we can get it. And so it could really shed light on how the early solar system formed. But as you alluded to, Sarah, it's not easy to get. The current way to do it is to fly airplanes high up in the atmosphere and hope that after several hours of flying, they can collect one (laughs) chondritic porous interplanetary dust particle, i.e. one particle of comet dust. And how do they capture comet dust in an airplane? It's actually a bit of a a messy process. They use plates coated with silicon oil to trap the particles like flies on flypaper. Then the particles, as you might guess, are contaminated, so they have to decontaminate the particles before they can start studying them. And again, you're talking about a large, a really large amount of effort just to get one particle of dust. And the reason we're talking about this today is because maybe there's now a better way to get the comet dust. It looks like Antarctica might be a comet dust haven. How did they figure this out? Researchers were surveying a couple different sites in Antarctica over several years, and they suspected that they might be able to find some comet dust there. What they did was they collected a bunch of ice, filtered off the water, and they actually collected more than 3,000 what are called micrometeorites. These are these tiny particles from space that are about 10 microns in diameter or larger. So these are pretty tiny things. But when the team analyzed them one by one under a really high-powered microscope, and this took five years, they were able to get more than 40 particles of comet dust, or at least it seemed to have the characteristics of comet dust. And on further analysis, they confirmed that, yes, these particles were identical to the particles that aircraft are currently collecting high up in the atmosphere. Even though it sounds like a large number, it's still over five years. Are scientists pretty sure that this is a better source than flying around an airplane with a with sticky tape on it? Well, now they have a better idea of what they're looking for. The other thing is that these particles are a lot cleaner. They don't have to capture them with oils like they do in the atmosphere. And so the process of being able to prepare them for analysis is a lot easier. And the thought is that if we can find an easier way to locate them in Antarctica, that's going to be a much cheaper, theoretically a cheaper and easier way to analyze these guys in the future. Lastly, we have a story on losing the Y chromosome. This was my favorite headline of the week. Smoke gets in your Ys. There's a new study that suggests male smokers tend to lose their Y chromosomes. Where are they losing these Y chromosomes from? Their entire bodies? Well, they're actually losing them from certain blood cells. The way this came about was researchers actually looked at a large study that had been going on that was comparing Swedish smokers to non-smokers. And the researchers actually looked at about 6,000 individuals 
and men they're looking at because only men have Y chromosomes. And they're trying to figure out what factors correlated with some of these men having fewer Y chromosomes in their blood cells than others. And the factors that seemed to correlate most with it were age and smoking. And in fact, smokers were 2.4 to 4.3 times more likely to be missing Y chromosomes in their blood cells than were non-smokers. So they're losing them from the blood cells, not the germline, or from cells important to making men men. But it's still a serious problem, right? Well, right, because you can imagine your chromosomes, even the Y chromosome, which isn't thought to have a ton of utility beyond making men men, actually may have a lot of really important functions in the body. So losing that may not be a good thing. And the researchers speculate that this may explain why smokers have shorter lifespans. And it also may explain why men have a slightly increased risk of death from the majority of cancers that, unlike breast or prostate cancer, are not specific to either sex. A lot of this is correlation so far. We know this has an effect on men specifically because it's the Y chromosome, and we know that smoking is associated with the Y chromosome. But is there any mechanism out there that might explain why this leads to cancer or how the Y chromosome is being lost? Well, it's all speculation at this point, but one hypothesis is that the cells are losing Y chromosomes, maybe a specific population of blood cells that become immune cells known to fight cancer. And so when these cells lose their their Y chromosomes, they also lose their cancer-fighting ability, and therefore you have a higher incidence of cancer in smokers and men that are missing these Y chromosomes. Well, what happens when these men quit smoking? Do they get their Ys back? Well, that's the silver lining here. It turns out that men who have stopped smoking for a while actually seem to be able to recover their Y chromosome. So as the story says, it's never too late to quit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about new insights into how the brain stores memory. Also a story about what explains the rise of various religions in the world. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about new efforts to ban genetically modified crops in the European Union, also a story about new attempts to grant legal personhood to chimpanzees. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. There are more than 10,000 living species of birds, but up until this year, only a few had their genome sequenced, like the chicken, the turkey, and the zebra finch. That all changes now with the publication of 48 bird genomes. I spoke with Eric Jarvis, one of the authors on a few of these papers, about what we can learn from this bird genome bonanza. I've been helping to lead an effort with a number of other scientists to sequence the genomes of at least one bird species per order of birds. And we have up to 48 bird species representing over 30 orders. We wanted to use those genomes to resolve the bird family tree of life, which has been a difficult problem to figure out for the last 100 years. And we also wanted to use them to do what we call comparative genomics of traits. So we can take birds who have different traits like vocal learning that I study and try to identify the genes that are responsible for that ability and see if they're convergent with humans. And now we have over 200 people from 80 laboratories and 20 countries and 23 papers about to be published on it. 
You mentioned one of the big questions going into this project, which is how did birds evolve and how are they related to each other? What are some of the other big open questions about birds? Some of the other big questions are why are bird genomes so much smaller than many other vertebrates? Bird genomes are about 70% smaller than mammals. And it turns out many species, species that fly, birds and bats, have smaller genomes. And one hypothesis is that they lost a lot of DNA so they can make their cells in throughout their entire body lighter wow. so they can fly with less energy. Now, was that backed up by your genomic studies? Yes. So we have now found in a paper by Zhang in Science that pieces of DNA that have been lost are mostly DNA that are in between genes. We call it intergenic regions. And we find it even purged viral DNA. So birds seem to be less susceptible to viruses than other species in, in order to lose weight. Wow. So they're adapted to be very efficient in their use of DNA compared to us mammals? That's right. I call them leaner and meaner machines. <laughs> they just got rid of all the junk and all the extra stuff and left the essentials and still can do things like we do and even better, like fly or uh, imitate sounds. Well, let's get to one of the big impacts from this work, the relationship between the different types of birds. What were the big shifts that came out of this work? Right. So for uh, many years, people have been using different kinds of information to try to infer the relationships of birds, like their morphologies or their particular traits and where they live, their songs and their DNA. And different genes give different relationships. And every three or so years, sometimes every five or ten years, somebody publishes a new study to change the family tree of birds. And theoretically, we know that if you have the entire genome, you might be able to really reach the true species tree as opposed to individual gene trees, which can differ. And what we found is that we support what has been recently reported in the paper by Hackett et al. in 2008 in Science where there's a core land bird group and there's a core water bird group. But we shook up other parts of the tree further back in time at the dawn of what we call the new aves radiation of birds, where we shifted hummingbirds and what we call swifts away from pigeons. We found the first divergence in the uh, new aves, which is right before the extinction of dinosaurs. There's been a controversy out there that birds evolved before the extinction of dinosaurs, like 10 to 100 million years before that, the new aves, and some have said, no, it's right around that time. Using the entire genome, we've been able to date their relationships. It really occurred around the time of the dinosaur extinction. Only four lineages survived that mass meteorite extinction event, and from those four lineages, we have 95% of 10,000 bird species wow. today with us. So you mean that there were birds and dinosaurs at the same time, but they went through a huge bottleneck during the same time that the dinosaurs went extinct? Yes, right. There were a number of bird species at the time of dinosaurs. That's right. And most of them went extinct. And all the other dinosaurs went extinct too. And so there are basically four lineages of dinosaurs that survived, and those are birds. Right. And then there was this massive radiation. There was like this ecological freedom of niches that once the dust cleared, they basically invaded all different ecological spaces around the world and uh, gave this radiation that is hard to figure out. Right. And why is it important to understand the relationships between the many, many kinds of birds that we have now? Well, I see several kind of people out there for why this is important. There are those kind of people who just love birds, <laughs> right? <laughs> they go out there searching and you know, going on their checklist and want to know who's related to who just because they love it. Then there are those people who really are interested in speciation and extinction and so forth. They want to know why do species have these bursts of making new species 
and what's going on around that time. How are species related? That's a bigger crowd amongst my scientific community. We're finding that yeah, speciation is not even. It does have this burst pattern to it. And when it happens, it's hard to figure out who's related to who because there was so much rapid speciation in such a short period of time that there wasn't enough genetic mutations accumulating to dissociate among them 60 million years later. Well, another area of intense curiosity and your specialty is this parallel between how birds use vocalizations, how they learn vocalizations, and humans, what's going on in their brains and how they understand sound. What did you learn about that area from sequencing so many genomes? So what we use these genomes for is to try to find out if the behavioral convergence for speech and song in humans and birds and the anatomical network convergence we're finding between us and those birds is correlated with the presence of molecular changes. And we predicted these would be involved in forming new connections since that's what makes the difference is the connectivity in the brain between humans and songbirds. And guess what? We found exactly that. We found 55 genes that are shared in their increased or decreased synthesis in the brain areas for speech in humans and the brain areas for song learning in parrots, hummingbirds, and songbirds. You also found that the same way of doing this arose in all these animals at different times, right? Right. What's remarkable to me is that it's not just one gene, two or even five genes, it's tens of genes that show convergence, which suggests that there's got to be some type of limited way in which nature has to evolve a complex circuit for speech. And let's talk about feathers for a second. You found out that there's some differences between bird feathers depending on which lineage they came out of? We found that the beta keratins, which are basically molecules that are in the skin, also become used to generate feathers. What they find is that there's these feather beta keratins that are unique to birds, and they appear in the common ancestor of birds, but they are different in different lineages of birds. So the water birds like penguins and pelicans, they have fewer beta keratin feather proteins. And even penguins have further mutations in them, which we think is related to their ability to basically fly in the water as opposed to in the air. And then the land birds have twice the number of keratins. And then domesticated species, the ones that humans have been domesticating, like the zebra finch and parakeets, have eight times the number of keratin genes. So somehow we humans in the last hundred years or more have been selecting for enhanced duplication of this gene family. And I think it's related to our wish to select birds with lots of different colors. Now, there's some odd ducks here in the bird genomes that got sequenced, (laughs) one of which is crocodiles. Why did those end up in the mix? Right. So um, crocodiles we brought into this effort because they're the closest living relative of birds. So if you want to find out if something evolved uniquely in birds, you have to look at its closest relative, and that's Mm -hmm. the crocodile, to see that they don't have it. And what does sequencing this closely related species tell us about birds? When we compare birds to crocodiles, we were able to tell which parts of the genome were deleted in birds. We were able to tell that tooth loss occurred once in birds because you're comparing it to crocs. And we were able to use some of what we call the old birds, like the uh, ostrich, to compare it to the crocodile genome and infer the common ancestor's genome. That's the common ancestor of crocs, birds, and all dinosaurs. So we reconstructed what a dinosaur genome basically 
could have looked like. You also found out some interesting things about crocodiles themselves. Just like birds have some really special changes to their genomes, crocs also have some unique features. So one of the unique features is just how the crocodile genome is evolving over time. Of all the vertebrates we've compared to, that includes amongst other reptiles and birds and you know, mammals and so on, the crocs are evolving the slowest, which means that their genomes, and you can say also their phenotypes, the way they look, look mostly like it has 50, 60, 100 million years ago. Any other highlights that I missed that you want to talk about? We were wondering initially, based upon a tree, that there could have been two independent gains of predatory behavior, one on a branch leading to eagles and the other on a branch leading to falcons, that they had separate origins. But actually what we're concluding is that the common ancestor of all the major land bird groups, the core land birds that includes them, was an apex predator. And what it happened is that the other species, like the vocal learning parrots and songbirds and the bee-eater and the woodpecker, have lost the predatory trait. And these species we find also related to what was called uh, giant terror birds that are now extinct in the South American continent. Now you're saying terror or terror? Terror. They call them terror birds because they ate mammals. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and they ate big mammals, and they, they're quite big. And you also mentioned that the woodpecker really stood out? It singled itself out more than any of the other species because it has a lot of repetitive DNA that didn't get deleted, similar to what you find in mammals. And is there any theory for that? Because it's along a further, the more derived branch of the tree, I don't think it's coming from a common ancestor. I think what's happened to the woodpecker is that transposon elements, viruses, and so forth invaded its genome early on before it diverged into other woodpeckers and made a bigger genome. And this guy can still fly just like any other bird species with more DNA. But for whatever reason, it's just undergoing this rapid evolution of repetitive DNA in its genome, making it bigger. It has nothing to do with hitting itself in the head over and over again with, against a tree. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's funny, hitting itself in the head. Yeah. <laughs> no one knows. We didn't really investigate enough, but that'd be a good topic for a follow-up study. Eric, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome, and uh, I had a great time talking with you. Eric Jarvis and colleagues write about the avian genome this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.